On the third floor of McReynolds Hall on the MU campus is a literary powerhouse, the Missouri Review. It's a 41-year-old, world-renowned literature magazine where writers such as Wally Lamb and Robert Olin Butler were first published. It's featured its fair share of acclaimed authors and it also jumps at the chance to give emerging writers their first byline. At its helm is Spear Morgan, who has been with the magazine for 40 of those 41 years. Morgan is an accomplished editor, novelist, and short story writer. He's an Arkansas native and a Stanford University graduate. In fact, he hitchhiked from Arkansas to California to show the admissions office just how much he wanted to get into the graduate program at Stanford. During his Stanford days, he smoked a cigarette every night before sitting down to write and ate a bowl of Cheerios just before bed. These days, if he's not in McReynolds Hall, you're likely to find him writing at a desk he built himself in his basement or standing and writing. I'm your host, Gaby Morera de Inuila, and here's Spear Morgan in conversation with our reporter, Taya White. Welcome to Vox Voice. Missouri Review is uh, our literary magazine, and we're in our working into our 42nd year. I've been been publishing uh, the magazine since uh, 1979. It's uh, gone through a lot of a lot of changes over the years. We started as any young magazine, very much dependent on grants from the NEA and so forth to even exist. As we got better known and began to develop the magazine in the 80s, we decided what our our editorial vision was, what our editorial purpose was. The editorial vision of the magazine includes the idea that we are going to try our best at all times, 12 months of the year, to be the one American magazine that is dependent entirely on quality, not on reputation. And so we became known as the Discovery Magazine over the years that followed. And consequently, we, we've published, you know, over the years, 25 Pulitzer Prize winners and and we've been called the mighty oak of the publishing world, along with such uh, presses as Farrar Strauss and Knopf and the New Yorker and the Paris Review. About how many submissions do you get per issue? About three to 4,000. So what's the process like after submissions are accept- accepted? The process is that they're accepted. The acceptance letter is written. Uh, we make sure that they're okay with edits, and and uh, we work with them. Often, either often Evelyn Summers, our our senior editor, will work with them on finalizing the manuscript, and she's she's really really good at that, and sort of again uh, kind of famous for that. The final edits are done, and and that usually takes a month or two, and. And, and then we, we line it up and, and, and get all the contents ready for the issue. I mean, it is true that we have other readers, interns and advisors who are other readers, both undergraduates and graduate students who work for the magazine and who thereby learn a great deal about the reality of publishing. How does distributing a literary magazine work these days? Well, you know, we started by by simply printing the magazine and distributing it and finding finding subscribers. 
And of course, in the old days, what that involved was mass mailings and efforts to get libraries to pu- to publish the magazine and and so forth. Uh, but fortunately, we had enough sense to start quite early in doing online versions of the magazine. In fact, we started in the 80s before there was really ever an internet. Uh, we started uh, trying to distribute the magazine on online insofar as there was an internet, which at that time was a, a pay-per-minute use uh, uh, network uh, that was really part of a defense uh, computer that you could rent space on. And so we started actually in 1983, 10 or 12 years before there was really ever uh, real internet, with the help of one of our interns, Mike McClaskey. Mike was the one who, who started, us, started us out, and we spent hours creating this early internet version in 1983. But then, when the internet really became real, we had a real website early on, and we started early on in distributing the magazine through um, a thing at Johns Hopkins that's called Project Muse, which is a worldwide distribution system for academic libraries. So it's all over Europe and Asia and America and the Americas, all over the world. And we have for the past uh, 12 years or so been um, the most distributed literary magazine on Project Muse receiving over 22,000 reads a year on Project Muse. So we're the number one lit mag on Project Muse, by far. And uh, so that's helped, uh, being sort of aware of, and we also distribute the magazine to subscribers online. And we have a very up-to-date subscriber system that allows you to read it on your phone or read it on your iPad or whatever. And with you know connections and all kinds of recordings and all that, so it's a very up-to-date method of distribution, both the subscriber method, the Project Muse method, and the print version. And these days, you've got to have those other things. It, it also allows us, because we're small and because we are academic and because we're at a university, we can try things that we ought to be doing, what everybody ought to be doing, which is to make the va- magazine available uh, in all audio uh, for, for those who maybe can't read or who, who, who prefer audio, whatever. So that distributed method, the subscribers who, who receive the subscription method uh, online have a professionally recorded version of the magazine that comes along with it. So all the pieces are professionally recorded. So we're, I think, the only literary magazine that has that in the United States, in the world. What are qualities essential for a good literary magazine editor to have? The combination that you need is both flexibility, inventiveness, literary taste, and a business sense. 
Do you have time to read outside the Missouri Review? And if so, what do you like to read? You know, lately I've been reading a lot of history, and because my novels are historically set, it's not completely irrelevant, but I'm reading Robert Wilson's uh, History of P.T. Barnum right now. To talk more about your own writing, in the past you've said that you prefer not to write about your own life, and you encourage young writers to look outside of themselves as well. Why is that? I think the mistake that a lot of young writers make is that they're, they're trying to rationalize their own lives and their own choices. And that can, that can really mess up your, you know, your, your fictional imagination. And if you can find a way to liberate yourself from that desire to rationalize your own choices, if you can, if you can liberate yourself from that and write freely about human nature, uh, you know, that's, that's the way to go because that allow, that opens up your imagination. In my case, I was, I was trying to, in some ways, rationalize some of the difficulties of my life. And there were two or three of those major difficulties in my early life, including the fact that I was an epileptic. And I, I kept trying to write about that in some interesting way. And so I would disguise it in various ways. And, and really, it, it, it kept me, in some ways, locked into that that group of issues. And when I decided that I had to open up and find some subject that I could be free with, and in my case, it was, it was kind of historical. Historical, but the area of the country that I had come from and therefore knew, knew the most about and could research. And, uh, you know, uh, I found myself able to be freer in that zone, writing about basically historical reality than about myself in disguise. Do you always use influences from your own life in writing? I think you do. I think you can't help but be influenced in some way uh, by your, you know, by your past, by your uh, own history, by your education, by your, you know, uh, what you've learned uh, in the world. So I, I think that inevitably it will affect your writing and it will influence your writing and there's nothing wrong with that i mean it's easy for me to write easier for me to write realistically about western arkansas and eastern oklahoma and it's easier for me to reach back in time uh, in that area and be surprisingly and even shockingly realistic about what it was really like because I reach back into that zone. My, his, my own history and my family's history reaches back into that zone. So what are some of the biggest surprises that have come with the Found Text series? Well, one thing is that when you're working with primary texts by, you know, important people, there, there's a kind of magic in primary texts. When you find letters from someone or, you know, an original manuscript by one of the Brontes or you know, something by Twain, and you're actually reading the real scribbled-down first version of it. It's always interesting. I mean, there's a kind of magic and a kind of power in that that is, and I hesitate to say this because it sounds like I'm merely using an exaggeration, but it's inexplicable and it's magical, and there is a power 
that exceeds the obvious in, in dealing with primary tax. And everybody who deals with primary tax will tell you that in one fashion or another. When we started doing these, uh, one of the first ones I did was from the Huntington Library in Pasadena. And the Huntington Library was a wonderful place to start because I met a very kind scholar who had been around for a long time. He was a, he was a Twain scholar. Um, and he was aware of some of the new and underused material in the library. And he turned me on to the papers of Robert Morris. And I ended up doing, we ended up doing a feature on, on, on the papers of Robert Morris. And he's a very interesting guy because he was the funder of the American Revolution. He was the man who came up with the money, even though there wasn't enough of it. He's the man who came up with what money there was for Washington's army. And he did it basically by kiting debt around Europe because he had, he had various connections with, uh, through his mercantile business in Philadelphia. And so he had connections in Europe and was able to make those connections and come up with money. But the, the found text that we did concerned him going bankrupt after the Revolutionary War. Uh, and it was due to America's first speculation mania in the early years of the Republic. Revolutionary War debt in 1789 was trading at about 15 to 30 cents on the dollar. Uh, and there, were, there was much less reliance on bureaucracies and laws and other systems. Uh, and various things popped up, various kind of crazy things popped up, including you know, speculation mania in Washington, D.C. real estate and in other areas of real estate. And that was the first crazy, what you might call, bubble in American history um, in the early 1790s. Uh, indeed, in some ways, it was, the mo it was the grandest bubble in American history, the first and grandest. Uh, you know, they, they were trying to build this new capital Washington, D.C. in a swamp um, and trying to get money, getting, 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 trying to get people to pump money into this effort. So it depended very much on private investors. The initial auction in Washington, D.C. real estate was, was a, a total failure. A lot of people bought pieces of property, including, including George Washington, but you know, the, it was a miserable failure as an auction. So uh, Washington and others got their old friend from Philadelphia, Robert Morris, to contribute to this effort. Uh, he had been signatory to the Declaration of Independence. He'd been, you know, uh, part of the Constitutional Convention. He'd been the superintendent of finance during the Revolutionary War. You know, he was the, he was the one, if anyone, to figure this out. And he himself had already been engaging in, in land real, in real estate speculation. He'd bought 1.5 million acres in New York, and he'd bought uh, 6 million more acres in seven other coast, coastal states. And so he bought 18,000 lots in, the new, in this new city of Washington, D.C. 
And he had this plan to build an elegant home in, in Philadelphia, uh, which turned into a nightmare as he began to go broke. And, and when he did go broke, when it became apparent that all this stuff wasn't going to hold up and that it wasn't worth that much money, uh, he was imprisoned and thrown into debtor's prison in Philadelphia. And during that time, he continued to write both in a diary and he continued to write letters. And so his papers were at the Huntington Library, and I was able to get them and to put together a kind of diary of his downfall and of his going to jail, where he spent most of the rest of his life, he spent seven years in prison uh, at the Prune Street Prison, the first big new prison in the United States. The guy who funds the American Revolution is the guy who ends up in it. <laughs> he, 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 was, he was released long enough to live at home for a year or two before he died. But, so it's a fascinating story and a fascinating kind of early look at the catastrophes that we can fall into uh, financially in this country. And from the start, we, we have fallen into in this country. Do you remember what it felt like the first time one of your works was published? When I got my first novel acceptance, I do remember exactly how it felt. It was wonderful because it was my third novel, uh, and my first two took a long time to write and fail at. My second novel took me three years to fail at. And so by the time I, I finished this third novel, um, it was do or die. And I was very happy when Atlantic Monthly Press took that, took that novel, and I do definitely remember. How would you say your own writing has changed over the years? Writing has almost become enjoyable to me again, which is rather strange because when I was young, a young writer, it was uh, a difficult experience. I mean, I was always having to sort of slave drive myself to get anything accomplished, and now it's, it comes much more naturally. You said that you're not planning to retire just yet, but what are your hopes for the future of the Missouri Review after you're gone? I hope that we remain able to evolve uh, with the times. In, in my career, publishing has been through a lot of changes, and, and it's going to have to stay open to those kind of changes, and so I hope the magazine's able to do that. If your life wasn't so consumed with literary magazines and um, writing, what do you think you'd be doing? You know, uh, I'd probably just be teaching. But if, if I weren't teaching literature, um, which was how I started, mostly teaching literary courses, um, I would probably be an entrepreneur, business person of some kind. Got it in my blood. That was Spear Morgan talking with our reporter, Taya White. Thank you to Spear for joining us. And that wraps this episode of Box Voice. If you want to hear more interviews with prominent Columbia figures, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast service. Our next episode with restaurant entrepreneur Gina Yu is available now. If you liked the episode, we'd love if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.